This is a Bergen Film Club podcast. Like an old movie removed from frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? I'm waiting. For the real thing to start Hello and welcome to The Real Thing. I am Joe Lawrence and I am going to be your host. And first and foremost, I am so excited to be doing this podcast. I, I love podcasts. I spend a lot of my time listening to them and it brings me a lot of joy to have been given the opportunity by Birkin Film Club to couple up with them lovingly, romantically and make our, our baby, which is this podcast. That was a nice analogy. Anyway, so this podcast is sort of an addition of Bergen Film Club. I'm going to be looking at the films that Bergen Film Club includes in their program. Historically, present, or upcoming, I'm going to be talking about all of the films, and I'm very, very excited to be doing that and, and getting started and sharing what is such a cool institution at the heart of, of Bergen, Norway. I've been a member of the film club for about a year as a volunteer, and it's it's great. It's such a, a lovely environment. Everyone is so nice. It's a great way to get to know people, and it's it's very cozy, and they show great films which is probably the most important thing i most recently became a board member with my job being this podcast so again just thanks so much for this opportunity and i'm sure you guys are listening hi thank you and let's get started so i'm sure that some of you might be wondering what bergen film club is and don't don't worry i've thought about it too and there will be an episode at some point regarding the the history and what Bergen Film Club is. But for now, I can tell you that Bergen Film Club is has existed since 1961. And it is essentially a film club, independent cinema in Bergen, Norway. Its goal is to show films that the other films and the other cinemas in Bergen are not showing, trying to show work from minorities and those disenfranchised groups, classics that are no longer seen on the big screen and forgotten treasures from relevant creators today, just giving a voice to those who need a voice whilst also just sharing a love and a passion for cinema. But there will be an episode discussing that at some point. Uh, So don't worry about it. You will get to learn the history. I thought that a good way to get started which is something that I always love in podcasts before that we before we're diving in together into the meat of the episode is to just you know enjoy each other's company and I thought it would be nice to to share some recommendations because that's always nice so the podcast that I've been listening to a lot recently is the podcast Buried Bones from Exactly Right Media. I'm a huge true crime fan and I'm sure that I'm not alone in that and honestly this podcast is just cream of the crop delicious true crime excellence it is the fantastic Kate Winkler Dawson who is a professor and a journalist and author podcast queen and she is doing this podcast with Paul Holes who is this very famous American detective who solved huge cases from the 1990s and basically them together she she presents him with a historic case and he tries to solve it with the limited information that she gives him throughout the episode it's very good and it's so cute because they're such big fans of each other and just check it out literally anything on the exactly right media podcast network is fantastic so definitely give that a listen in terms of tv i'm not a huge tv head at the moment but i did just start the series you season four i think that that is a trashy show but 
I keep coming back to it and you know they're in England now I'm from England and it's it's uncomfortable to really get a sight of what Americans truly believe English people are like so that is kind of painful and the stereotypes are a bit grim at times but it's fine you know it's a tv show I'm watching it but the thing that I have been absolutely I must tell people about this that but not that it is like a hidden show or anything but the tv show Love is Blind on Netflix season three I'm not particularly a huge fan of reality TV anymore. I used to be a huge fan, but it made me super depressed because I couldn't face the reality of this is what the world is actually like for extremely rich people. But this show is like no other reality TV show that I've ever seen. It's people getting engaged without seeing each other, spending a week with each other, and then decide if they get married. It's just insane. It's a ride, it's emotional, it's human, so check that out for sure. I find myself questioning myself a little about why I like it so much, but honestly, if you just like good produced television, good entertainment, then sit down with a delicious meal for 45 minutes and love is blind. Now pivoting to maybe a bit more relevant recommendation, I recently watched Elvis 2022. I'm trying not to have too strong opinions on this podcast because I feel like listening to someone hate on something that you love is not good listening. So I'm going to be diplomatic with my review of this. I am not particularly fond of Baz Luhrmann's directing style. I find it overwhelming and I find it loud. So going into Elvis, I wasn't so sure that it was something that I would like and I was right. It was very fast and it felt like a two-hour trailer for a movie, which was interesting. Tom Hanks, probably the worst acting that I've ever seen from him. Saving Grace, absolutely. Austin Butler was incredible in that role. He is, firstly, just the embodiment of Elvis, which is crazy. He sings just like him and moves and speaks like him and it's... And it's incredible. And on top of that, he's also really handsome. So that's great. And yet, I can see why he got that Oscar nomination. Absolutely deserved for that. But it's just it's just like I said, I, I'm not such a big Baz Luhrmann fan. So that film was never going to be a hit for me. But definitely watch it if you haven't seen it. Because I learned a lot about Elvis. And I love to learn. And just... Watch, watching for Austin Butler's performance alone was is, is honestly worth it, given the length of the film. So Birkin Film Club is now solidly into its spring semester catalogue program of films. So we had our opening a couple of weeks ago, and since then we've shown some Brian De Palma movies, which is something that we might eventually talk about. It was a very controversial topic. He's the director of Scarface and Carrie, and, and many other films, many other films that a lot of people consider terrible movies. So there's definitely been a lot of discussion about that. Um, an upcoming film that we have and a film that is going to feature on the podcast is the documentary Tickled. So definitely, you know, keep that in mind because we are going to definitely talk about that because it is, it's a strange phenomenon if you don't know what it's about. It's about an underground tickling competition I suppose and it's a bit insidious but it's also very very interesting so definitely keep an eye out for that and let's just begin with our first movie of this podcast we are going to be talking about the film Your Name Your Name was a 2016 anime film written and directed by Makoto Shinkai. When it was released, it was met with huge critical acclaim for its visuals, its music, and the emotional weight of the story. And this acclaim was felt globally. 
one of the few films in recent years to have a huge uh, reception outside of Japan, which was very exciting for this director. Since then, he has gone on to make a couple new films, similarly also very successful, with Weathering With You in 2019 and Suzume in 2022. So my goal here in the, in the podcast is to sort of explain this film in a spoiler-free-ish way, because I think ideally you should watch the film because I can't stress this enough about how lovely this film is. Genuinely, it is just the sweetest hug of a film and if you haven't seen it now you are doing yourself a disservice without even knowing it so the plot of the film is it's following a 17 year old high school girl called misuha miyamizu who lives in a remote town which is located in japan's mountainous hida region she is kind of bored and disinterested with living in the countryside and she wishes and dreams of being a handsome boy living in Tokyo in her next life. The movie utilizes then a body swap storytelling device since one day Mitsuha wakes up in the body of a boy who actually lives in Tokyo. The body swap is not permanent but instead it's it's random and there are days when they wake up in the other person and there are days that they don't. And they kind of try to discover who each other are by leaving each other messages through writing or on their bodies, trying to basically find out what is happening here and what this connection that they have eventually leading to or if they can try and meet each other. And it's just so beautiful and it explores kind of like how it is to live the life that you dream of and be with the person that you are, are dreaming of. And like I said, it's just such a such a gorgeous, beautiful film and it has these general themes to sort of love and the coming of age, destiny, sort of a supernatural time element, all based around this Freaky Friday concept, which is just so awesome. Makoto Shinkai utilizes digital tools to make his movies, as opposed to Studio Ghibli, which tend to use uh, drawing. This allows him to so this allows him to make these really stunning visuals without having to dedicate maybe thousands of hours of work. I was reading that he made a short film very early in his career where he did the drawing by hand process and when he finished it he was just like yeah I'm not going to do that again that was too much work and it was the product wasn't worth it I'm just going to leave that to the the masters themselves Studio Ghibli which is which is fair enough. He uses a lot of inspiration from events that are affecting people in Japan. Um, but in a way that I think that, which is such a beautiful thing about all of his films, is that there is this human connection baseline plot all the time. So you have these themes that sort of transcend culture and language and allow anyone to identify with the characters on the screen. He says that, without giving too much away in your name, there is some sort of natural disaster event and he was inspired by the the numerous natural disasters that Japan experienced in the early 2010s. This was the Great Earthquake in Eastern Japan and also the nuclear meltdown in Fukushima and the fallout that occurred from all of that, literally and figuratively. This way that he's inspired by saying that this could be you, this could happen to you, this could happen to your family. And what would that be like for the person who maybe isn't directly affected by it, but a family member, a friend? And I think that's just why his films come off in such this pinpoint accurate, emotional, beautiful way, is that he looks at this human experience and these feelings that everyone shares, and that's what makes his films really, really so beautiful. But fret not, this podcast is not just me talking for the whole 50 minutes. I sat down with Matthew Beatty to talk about this film and anime in general. So Matthew, who uses they, them pronouns, is a 22-year-old non-binary filmmaker. They had a film premiere at the Luma Film Festival. The film The Family and Friends of Emily Fairhurst, which takes a look at and follows the journey of this girl as she 
goes through successive years of therapy leading up to her making a very big decision about her own life and her relationships. It's a very beautiful film and Matthew really captures what I was saying, this sort of human experience that a lot of young people especially are feeling and it's a really gorgeous, gorgeous film. Right now they're working in post-production in social media and it was so fun to, to talk to them about this. I definitely do not consider myself an authority on anime at all and I, I really do consider them uh, an anime connoisseur, you could say. So it was really great and I had a lot of fun talking to them about this movie and this genre in general. Hi, Matthew. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the first episode of this podcast. That's fine. Thanks for, thanks for having me, you know. Debut. Yeah, good sport. <laughs> Thank you for putting your trust that this is going to be something worth your time causes any any excuse i have to talk about films i will yeah. i'll go for it i'll go for it dog yeah and especially this film it's uh it's a very good one yeah to start with i think yeah and especially um to talk to you about as someone i consider a, an anime aficionado <laughs> <laughs> so yes we are talking about your name and i just thought that i'd start lovely plain and simple matthew why do you like this film? Right. Well, I'd watched it um, when it came out. It came out in like 2016, I think. And I really enjoyed it then. But uh, I did a film degree at uni. And for the first year, we had to watch like a different film every week to for the story module. And like looking at like different ways that narratives work and various different pieces of uh, cinema. In one of them was your name uh, discussing uh, non-linear storytelling. Because okay. when you think about it, both characters, you kind of jump back in between their lives and some sections aren't told in order. And it all comes together at the end. And I think it's fantastic in that way that um, I would say a non-linear screenplay is definitely harder to pull off. And also, um, but it's more satisfying when everything ties together. And I feel like that this film does it really really well um i also love the style that makoto shinkai has as a director in both um the kind of animation style that they have and also um just the the direct the direction of it overall and you can definitely see in his other works like weathering with you and stuff it's very distinct Mm -hmm. and that's why i like obviously about um a lot of like directed works is that like I'd like it when you can tell that a director's done this. I mean Wes Anderson comes to mind and stuff. So like is an example of a, a like a primary stylization. And I think how big anime is at the moment is like you need something that's gonna make your work stand out in order for it yeah. to kind of like really make significant impact on like a Western audience and stuff. Anyway, sure. that's like a complete like I guess I kind of broaden it. But yeah, I really liked it <laughs> for the non-linear storytelling. I think the characters were written really well as well. I yeah, I think I also like the it's a very weird thing, I think, that only like anime can get away with. Is that like in between even despite it not being a musical, there's just like a there's the song in between, like I think it's around halfway through the film, it kind of breaks up the sections but i've seen it done in other anime things as well and it, that's kind of the theme song of the because it's kind of it's hard to explain it's like it's the theme song of the film but it's like yeah. vocal and it's not at the start or like the credits whatever it's like the middle like the it's like i think it's like around like the end of the first act or something but yeah, it works so. with every yeah it works with everything that happens as well i think a, a really interesting thing that my, the researchers of the podcast showed us that is that so the film is different from sort of the anime films that we're used to in mm-hmm. the sense that it it's done completely uh digitally yeah it's like no drawing uh but that that was the thing that they said about making the score and making the songs is that they had this band that they worked with uh radwimps it was this like big j-pop band and they made the the score the same time that they were making the film oh so- okay it was like this the score was influencing the characters and the film and the drawing at the same time that it was also influencing it the other way. So I think that's a really interesting, like a, a very unique way of making a film, I think, because the score is something that usually comes afterwards. My mate used to say to me, my mate Cameron, he's always like, a soundtrack makes a film. And I used to be like, that's stupid. Yeah, like, sure. I don't agree. 
but now I, well, I used to be, I don't agree, but now <laughs> I completely agree with that. Like after I would say when I started film school, I was like, I don't know, like the soundtrack's just an extra thing. But after like studying it and like watching more and more stuff, um, mm-hmm. you kind of realize how much of an impact um, like the score and the soundtrack has on conveying certain emotions to the audience yeah. and also um, how it tells the story in conjunction to the visuals. And I think the perfect example is your name in the sense that the soundtrack was obviously made simultaneously to the visuals. So it feels very intertwined. And yeah. again, it's this entire idea about time and how how that's you know interpreted in the film so it works very well yeah for so. sure like everything that you can't say in words you can say in music i wanted to talk to you like you just mentioned time is one of the themes of this film um alongside love destiny yeah. juxtaposition of of you know countryside and city girl boy yeah. coming of age is a theme yeah. that is seen in so many animes and so many anime films i feel like you'd be hard pressed to find an anime that doesn't have coming of age included in the in the genre list what do you think about that is what makes it so popular to us and so accessible with having this this coming of age theme i think um with a lot of anime um especially it's kind of the the audience the target audience is like young adult and teenagers and i think a lot of gen z in like kind of um young adult yeah gen z uh, young <laughs> adult audiences look for relatability in um media especially i do i mean i wrote my entire dissertation on like interpretation with characters um based on someone's inter- like based on their own personal identity and stuff and mm-hmm. i think Coming of age is like literally one of my favorite genres of film. And I think it is because when I I feel the most connected to characters, when I see how they act on screen and it being real and it, it yeah. being a, in a way that I would react to certain situations or things that I would experience in my life. I mean, even from um the, the I forgot the names, but the, the girl character, she has like a part-time job in it or something. Or is it the guy? I think the guy has a part-time job in it. And I was like, I used to work in hospitality and I can like totally relate to that. And I know that's completely mm-hmm. like a side, like a side part of his character that isn't like really heavily involved in the story at all. But it's just like the little things that make you feel like you can relate to the characters, I guess. Like they yeah. feel like real people. And I think with coming of age, it's easier to feel more empathetic and um, like it's easier to care about the characters more if you find mm-hmm. them relatable as well. And that gives you more of a stronger connection with what you're watching. So I think there's that. And I mean, I think it's easy to interpret coming of age genres in anime the most because a lot of it does, a lot of animes do just involve like a lot of young adult characters and teenagers. Mm-hmm. So it's an easy genre to kind of implement in the work because you, you see a lot of animes that, have coming of age elements but it's a romance or it's still an action so it's still in there but i think some of them like take it further i think your name is like a perfect example because it is a romance i guess at the end of the day by the end it is like a they find a connection between them but you see both of their lives from obviously the different environments that they grew up in and how they kind of are different people in those lives so you're basically seeing a coming of age story of these two separate people and then how they are once they come together. And then it's a coming of age story with like, a, it's a coming of age romance story. Once they realize that they have that connection, they start swapping mm-hmm. bodies and stuff. Yeah. That's such a nice sentiment. That's like a really <laughs> nice way to think about it. Like ultimately, like we go to the cinema to see a good story, but I think that's what we can find so pleasing about film is you want to see yourself. You want to see your own yeah. personal struggles so that you feel validated in a way. So not to jump too far away from that, but I just wanted to say that this next question that I have for you is something that I'm prepared for. I'm prepared for a rant. I'm prepared okay. for some big opinions from you. I was going okay. to ask you, what is your favorite anime? Oh, okay. Well, actually, well, it's funny because I'm wearing this fleece, right? And I did not okay. just put this on. I said a joke because I was like, I was like, 
I was like, I'm gonna put this piece on because I'm cold, and I did put it on because I was cold. But it is this isn't my favorite anime, but it's one of my favorite. It's like I don't think you can see it, but it's like cut out of these two characters from B Stars. Anyway, but that's like a fantastic uh-huh. anime. But um, okay. it's my favorite anime of all time is uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I think it's incredible. Came out in like ninety five, ninety six. Guy director Hideki Anno. I would say that it's it it can be argued that it basically paved the way of modern shonen today. So I was curious, what did they mean by shonen anime? Shonen typically refers to the age of the protagonist of an anime. It's usually referring to a young boy around the age of fifteen. This also is referring to the demographic that these shows are aimed at. A lot of these animes and mangas have a young male hero, and the focus of the show is action, adventure, and fighting. Matthew also mentioned something called mecha anime, which I was curious to know what that was. Mecha is a genre of Japanese anime that heavily features or focuses on mechanical innovation. The umbrella of mecha, everything underneath that, is robots, cyborgs, androids, space stations, space travel. However, it seems that the main focus of these animes is using the inclusion of robots. Because um, basically, it's a mecha anime at heart. You know, it's this thing of like kids like in fucking robots that are like fighting and all that stuff. Okay. But it, but in like in reality, once you get without spoiling it too much, once you get more and more into it, it kind of deconstructs the shonen genre in a sense that going back to the coming of age thing. You always mm-hmm. see these, like, especially in action animes, you always, like, have these, like, like 15-year-old kids, like, destroying buildings and stuff in, like, fighting crime. And it's, like, Evangelion kind of takes that idea and it's, like, it got the anime from the 80s and looked at all of these, like, popular shounens at that time and was, like, what would happen if you actually got, like, this 14-year-old kid to do that? Like, and basically just shows, like, the mental health side of it. And, like, okay. it's a really... It, it turns from a uh, action mecha to like a psychological horror, and it's fantastic. And really? I yeah, I could go on and on about <laughs> it. I think it's amazing. Um, yeah, I'm sure you could. There's basically there's like the show is 26 episodes long, and then without spoiling too much, episodes 25 and 26 um were controversial with what was in it, and uh, not in a kind of sense of. Um, censorship or anything, but more in a sense that the fans were not really happy with what with what's in there and what I was see. produced. Uh, but basically, because of that, Hideki Anno, the guy who directed it, was like, "Okay, I'm gonna release a hour and a half film, uh, which is basically an alternate ending." And that ended up being like one of the um, best anime films of all time. It's critically acclaimed. It's got okay. that. It's got that top like I think it's in like the top twenty five highest rated films on Letterbox. Like it's got that Letterbox uh, cosine. <laughs> it's it's and it's in my like top two like top five films of all time. It's just really incredible. What frustrates me though is that like I think End of Evangelion is amazing. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. I actually like it more, the film more than the actual show. Okay. But in order for me to recommend the film, you have to watch the show first. It's just right. paramount that you need to watch the show first. But um yeah, and I think. Um, with Evangelion, I think again it's down to it is it is coming of age as this fourteen year old kid who's been told that he needs to pilot these robots or else aliens are gonna like destroy the entire world. But it kind of takes a step back, like I said, and says if a fourteen year old was told to get in a robot or else like the entire world's gonna end, like how would a kid actually react? And right. what kind of mental toll would it have? And it's a very much a deconstruction of that rather than like you know standard shonen animes have this like kid who can like do anything and it's just like constant action and just a constant it's it's made to be you know an entertainment turning piece of work and so is evangelion there's action scenes and stuff like that but it does more than that and there's a lot you can say about it as well in terms of um i mean the sexuality there's lgbt stuff um okay interpreted in it as well during the end of the show again don't want to spoil anything at this point, I decided to ask Matthew about the accessibility of anime to Western audiences, both about the themes being accessible, but also similarly, genuinely just accessing anime. For the longest time, it was very difficult for Western audiences to watch anime, and it was only available on certain websites such as Crunchyroll, which was a streaming service that had a huge library of anime, subtitled and dubbed in English. One of the most 
popular animes to come out of this, which inspired this whole new anime wave, was the anime Attack on Titan, which follows essentially a group of child soldiers fighting against these man-eating titans, which are these grotesque, giant, skinless, sometimes monsters that are threatening the human race. Matthew goes on to discuss how streaming services such as Netflix and Amazon Prime realized what a lucrative business venture this could be to invest in anime since there was such a large audience watching it already. And that maybe the success of anime in the West is actually driven by capitalist greed. I think a lot of the reasons why Attack on Titan was very popular in, in like a Western audience because it was easily accessible. So before sure. before Netflix acquired Evangelion, I think it was in 2017, they bought the rights to the show. Yeah. Uh, there was no legal way to find the show um, apart from buying the physical DVDs or VHS mm-hmm. tapes. Or um, I think they would allow, or like, because it wasn't available. This is when I feel like since Eva came out in the late 90s, it wasn't really a show that um, was a straight a streaming service show. Or it, in, since it was made by Gainax, which like an anime uh, company, they, they don't have a set kind of like um, streaming service themselves. It's like Crunchyroll, but Crunchyroll didn't have access to that show as well. And I think, like, for example, Beastars, which is a show another anime show that is being made for Netflix. So that's instantly on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I think Attack on Titan came out in around 20, I think 2013 is when the first season came out. And that was when yeah. like streaming, like anime streaming services were like at its peak. Like not only was Crunchyroll being subscribed to, um, it was also like Netflix in Amazon Prime and stuff. They were starting to understand how much money and how much kind of, income the anime medium gets not only in japan but in like yeah. a western audience so they started investing in anime because you had stuff like sword Art online which is like not a very good show at all but that is like the impact that that had is like mm-hmm. massive because you have like these gateway shows like if somebody watches Titan titan or sword Art online they'll start get- getting into more and more shows i got this friend mm-hmm. sam not an anime like at all and i was like I want you to watch Evangelion because it's my fav- favorite show of all time. But if you want to get into anime, I would recommend Attack on Titan first, then watch Evangelion. Because I feel like yeah. it introduces, it's a perfect introduction to like the, the genre. And it's the same with films. Like I would say Ghibli films and um, Makoto Shinkai stuff like Weathering With You and Your Name and Mamoru Hosoda films like Summer Wars and um, Mirai and um, Girl Who Let Through Time. They're all like fantastic yeah, things to introduce you to the anime medium before you get into like other shows that might be a bit harder to understand or like kind of harder to grasp like that's the way i see it definitely is that accessibility um yeah it is a massive thing in terms of international media and how we access it is like kind of determines how popular it is in certain areas but i think that's like such an a, a big thing is it was something that i wanted to talk to you about this whole accessibility thing because it's not even physically not being able to get it but the cultural references are so different yeah you know like in your name for example there's this whole the whole part where she is with her her grandmother and she's uh, making an offering at the shrine and she makes the sake that's like a fermented starter from human saliva which is like weird but yeah (laughs) of course we say it's weird because it's a it's a different culture but it's a thing that we don't understand but i think that's why shows like Attack on Titan or maybe Your Name can be so popular in the West because they're not so like specifically about Japan. Yeah. In a way, and maybe that's why it makes them so popular, but then almost feels like it's a shame. It's like the we we're popularizing it ourselves through dubbing, for for an example. Yeah. You can sort of change the narrative slightly there and make it accessible to the Western audience by sacrificing what makes it like intrinsically Japanese. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree that is it's a shame because I mean, even in um the Evangelion redub, um they changed a few of the lines which a lot of people weren't happy with, which they said mm-hmm. censored uh the gay relationship in it. Um, oh really? Yeah. So it was a more like changing like I love you to I like you and stuff like that, and people took that the wrong yeah. way, which I think I agree they should have kept the original um translation, but mm-hmm. it was because Netflix went for a more literal 
air translation and apparently that was the more literal one but i don't know it was just a bit weird but but that is another thing is that like with a lot of you know media that we consume from american kind of um directors you know like paul thomas anderson um Quentin Tarantino, a lot of the stuff like, you know, you think about director's cuts and you think about Criterion copies and you think about the director's intended way of watching a film. You know, you had like Zack Snyder Justice League that was like in four <laughs> by three in like black and white. And it's like four hours. Yeah. And yeah, four hours. And it's <laughs> this thing of like sometimes um, anime will be censored in the West due to like the certain sections or certain things that, um, you know westerners wouldn't understand in terms of culture it's like how much of a difference does that dub make or that subtitle change make that kind of differs it from the director's intention of how it should be viewed but that's that's i think i guess that's just like a conversation for world cinema overall lucas yeah i suppose it depends it's frustrating to think that sometimes the way you watch a film or the way that it's the way it's presented to you is um kind of dictated by the distributor and how they Mm -hmm. decide to translate or do the film so it it, but i mean a lot of distributors and stuff always have the director and the kind of story and narrative in mind obviously but sometimes it does get um frustrating when things are changed so drastically that you lose that source material i guess i think dubbing and that whole concept of like losing what it might might originally have been is something that a western audience doesn't think about like at all like we are so used to consuming media in english that you wouldn't even you wouldn't like i said you don't give it a second thought when it's just being fed to you as is because it's just changed into something that you are accustomed to and you're not expecting anything different i think the way that we watch tv is sometimes different to other cultures as well mm-hmm. um there's this idea of like tv dinner shows where it's like something you just put on the in the background if somebody wants to watch anime in the background whilst doing something you're not going to put the subtitle version on because you're going to have to sit there and read the subtitles but True. a dubbed version you can hear in the background but it it's it but is that the intended way of watching a show, especially with anime shows that are usually enriched in like story and stuff. I think Attack on Titan do both subtitled and dub incredibly well. So I think some shows do it really well and adapt to, um, I mean, it's again, this this idea of adaptation. There's people who probably, you know, watched the anime, I'm sorry, read the manga before they watched the anime and then they went, oh, well, this isn't as good as the, uh, good as the, the novel i read and it's the same way with dubbing and subbing like it's like uh the dub doesn't really have the same it's emotional impact as well like some dubs don't have the same kind of punch there's a part in end of evangelion the film where shinji does this scream and the dub in my opinion is like awful it sounds so goofy but then there's a <laughs> screen the, the japanese version of the scream is like blood curdling it is like really? um, yeah it's amazing and like it just sh- sends you shivers down your, down your spine the second that matthew said that i thought i need to hear this scream and i listened to it and i'm gonna put it in after this because there is definitely a difference between these two screams so here is the japanese scream which i agree is pretty blood curdling and here is the english one which i agree is definitely goofier lastly i wanted to talk to you about something i don't know is not controversial but just maybe quite a a big point that is probably felt a lot by the anime community i am someone who doesn't watch a lot of anime i watch a lot of studio ghibli i know that's anime whatever but but I feel like there is, to the non-anime watcher, to an anime watcher, there is sort of like, a, I feel like a lot of people look down on people yeah. who watch anime. And that obviously we have this term weeb, just <laughs> which defines someone who is sort of likes Japan, likes anime, etc. But it used to be a sort of, well, derogatory is not the right word, but like a word that you can use to make fun of someone. Whereas now I feel like it's a bit, it's a bit more chill. But like, why do you think that there is this sort of 
difference? Why do you think that people who maybe don't, who are on the outside looking in onto the anime culture community, why why do you think that they think it's so weird? So I think there's a lot to say about this. I think one thing is that um, what I find really interesting is I actually saw a TikTok about this like literally this morning. Oh, and it was about how, like, again, I don't mind talking about this. Like, I'm a furry, not like a like another <laughs> weird kind of subculture that people are involved in. Mm-hmm. And somebody said like the the the, the 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 stigmatism that furries are going through like now in modern media in like content creation stuff like that is what anime people were going through like five or six years ago, which I like wholeheartedly agree with. And I think it goes down to like the mainstream. The, the like the mainstream of it and kind of how much how popular it's gotten so like mm-hmm. i used to be like massively in anime when i was like 15 16 like really in anime and at that time like it was not cool to like anime like it was not no like it was not cool to like say that you watch anime and stuff but i would say now like i recently um got a new job in london and like i've been like getting Ooh. to know my co-workers and stuff and I'm talking about anime with them. And I, maybe it's just because I'm in like the creative industries and stuff, but it's just, I'm like, oh, have you seen Attack on Titan? And then this like this guy who's like, does not look like you would like watch anime. Again, it's this idea of like, somebody watches anime, like looks nerdy and stuff like that, or like, isn't like mm-hmm. all this kind of like pop culture stuff. He was just like, oh yeah, I absolutely adore Attack on Titan. And I think it's because it's hit like, like Western mainstream now to a point where, you know, it's easily accessible for people. Like usually... Mm-hmm. You would have to watch on a dodgy anime website or subscribe to Crunchyroll, which is specifically for anime. Yeah. Now, if you go on Netflix, there is an entire section just for anime, and they yeah. license their own anime. They fund. You've got Gretzko, um, which is a Netflix anime series. Obviously, you've got Beastars, which is an anime series. You've got Seven Deadly Sins, and it's the same with um, Prime. I think Prime of, um, so, I mean, um, Evangelion have got the rebuild films and again Amazon funded um the final one of those rebuild films and it's this idea really? that yeah and it's this idea that again streaming services are realizing how um prop like I guess profitable even though they're really like the idea of like corporations profiting off people's is like uh, it's a profitable medium because it's gotten yeah. this bit and I think the the accessibility of it is caused a lot of people to get into it Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically people who would not normally be in anime and now it's just a standard and i think one i think ghibli really heavily pioneered that because i think for sure uh, Gib- ghibli films again similar to evangelion bought by netflix and now you can have the entire ghibli library like at your fingertips on your streaming service when originally you'd be able to watch the ghibli films if they were on tv or you would buy the dvds and I think, again, this idea that I was saying before about Studio Ghibli being like a kind of gateway into more anime TV shows is that it's so easily accessible that you can just watch those and realize, oh, this this is like actually not what I was expecting. So I think the reason why this, this term weeb is like, I don't know, it, it's more chill now is because there's more, anime has become more mainstream. Yeah. It, um. I think there is still, I think it depends on the shows. I think a lot of stuff like My Hero Academia and Titan Titan, they're very westernized with their like content. Yeah. Like I was saying before, like standard anime shows that were popular back in 2015, 2016 would be like these harem shows where they'd be like sexualized anime girls and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, there's, it's, it's like, I wouldn't, it's similar to kind of like, I don't know, I'm trying to find a way to put this. It's like, Anime shows like that, you can't pretend that they don't exist. But yeah, for that, sure. at, the, at that time, that was what was popular. Apart bar like a few shonen shows mm-hmm. that were really hard to get into. Like Naruto was massive in 2015, 2016. But then you'd have to watch like 400 episodes of the show. And it's just, yeah. and then you've got all this, you know, kind of stuff to watch with that. So I think there's a lot more smaller shows which a lot of people are getting into now, like, like mm-hmm. Attack on Titans, a few seasons. you got a lot of 12-episode shows, like Erased is on, I think it's still on Netflix. That's a 12-episode show. So you got oh. these bite-sized shows that people can easily binge-watch. And I think it's easily binge-watchable binge for a Western audience because anime shows have 20-minute episodes when oh, a kind yeah. of standard Western um, episode is around like an hour or like 50 minutes. Like you think of like Breaking Bad or something. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, no, that that's why I think the term weeb is, is changed from something that was more negative to something that's more uh, discussed now is because of how mainstream it went, which is both down to the accessibility and the kind of shows they are. But now you've got shows like My Hero Academia, which is about like superheroes, and you think about, about how big Marvel is, and then you think if there's a show entirely circulating around this kid who's got like superhero powers and is learning to have these powers, it's the same kind of aspect as like Spider-Man origin films and stuff like that. Yeah. And you got you got to think of like the Western audience. Think about how much Marvel is like worth and how many big budget Marvel films there is now. Yeah. And and how much of a grasp that has on like the like kind of the film industry. It's the same thing with anime where like something like My Hero Academia, which is one of the biggest anime shows probably in, in the West, it, it it has the same kind of feel and the same kind of themes, but it's this, you know, medium that was only known for like these weird shows that, yeah. you know, are have these kind of like interesting, very unique uh, styles to them or art that, you know, I feel like a lot of stuff in anime is overreacted or like kind of you know exaggerated and i think that used to be something that people used to make fun of and i think it still is like it can still be uh looked from a satirical lens but mm -hmm. i think now people see it as like if they're watching an action film they know they're going to get some good action scenes in anime because everything's exaggerated so it's even more entertaining i think shows like in films they're very much kind of appealing to a western audience now because you've still got this westernized anime but then the mm -hmm. sprinkles of what makes it the actual genre special and that's what it is so yeah. yeah and that's what i appreciate about your name is that it yeah it does what it is supposed to do very well but it also is sort of and i think that's really what allows certain animes to be so special is that it every new popular one is pushing a boundary further than the previous one did and i think that's yeah ultimately what makes it such an exciting genre to to follow mm -hmm. and especially this uh this director makoto shinkai he said that like his goal has always been to do something different and do his own thing and even sort of commenting that he got annoyed when he got compared to miyazaki because mm -hmm. he was like miyazaki does one thing i'm I because i think it's really yeah. um it's really easy to compare oh like, yeah big time family orientated or like pg uh, like like not like you know like not heavy kind of r-rate of 15 mm -hmm. anime films to um miyazaki and it's good you say that because i think one person i forgot to talk about was um i think satoshi khan um who was an amazing anime director but he did stuff that was more like um like r-rated anime films and it was something i think um con con's films were something that came to a western audience where it again it was like the, the late 90s similar either where it was like this is something different and you know i'm used to these like cute cuddly totoro ghibli films where but now i've got these um kind of this, this film like perfect blue that deconstructs um yeah like the the kind of the idol industry in japan and becomes like a psychological horror and you mm -hmm. know it's a thriller it's it's a really really good film and it was something different that was aimed towards like a more um adult audience compared to yeah. something like um Miyazaki so it wasn't really comparable but I do agree like uh, Mamoru Soda who makes more like family oriented anime films or like kind of like young adult anime films again is something you'd be like oh you know like Mamoru Soda is kind of like it's kind of like Miyazaki kind of stuff I think it's just I think it's very I don't know be a bit critical but I think it's quite small minded to compare everything to Ghibli because I think Ghibli yeah. is its own thing in itself yeah, but so, it's so, so easy so, to compare it. To like, yeah, to generalize it, and it's not good yeah. to generalize because everyone does their own. Absolutely not. Absolutely. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's <laughs> been so nice to have you as my first guest. No worries. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Love talking about anime. Anytime. Yeah, anytime, any, any place. I didn't know if you wanted to tell the lovely listeners if you wanted to plug yourself if you wanted to plug uh -huh. anything go for it okay. the stage is me. yours okay so um if you want to follow me on twitter it's uh mighty feels rough so m-a-t-t-y f-e-e-l-s-r-u-f-f -F. uh tweet about 
running like stuff like film stuff and furry stuff as well uh, i have my own podcast where i bring on furry artists and creators and we talk about like why they're a part of this weird subculture and uh, they also pick a film and an album to talk about so there's the film aspect of discussing films so if you want to check that out thanks uh, <laughs> it's called for real f-u-r-r-e-a-l if you put like for real podcast on uh, youtube you'll find it or if you just search for real on spotify or apple you'll find it as well and yeah and follow my letterboxd which is matthew underscore Beatty spelled b-a-y-t-e-e there we go that's all my yeah. plugin you're making your big <laughs> big letterbox comeback my big letterbox comeback yeah i haven't done any letterbox stuff for ages and then i'm i'm gonna it's because i've been yeah. watching tv shows though because i've been watching better call saul in like attack on titan i've been watching tv shows and you can't log tv shows on letterbox no. so i'm not really been to... watching films you gotta get, get back, back into it man i know i know the fans are waiting i'm waiting yeah i'm i'm a letterbox micro celebrity with my 100 followers man <laughs> absolutely okay well thank you very much again no worries thank you very much so that's that we made it to the end of the first ever episode of the real thing that's so exciting that i can say that and to be doing this and thank you to bergen film club again for giving me this opportunity thank you to matthew for joining us it was so nice to talk to them about about this film and giving such good insight into something that i really don't know a lot about so it was definitely really interesting to learn about all of that stuff and thank you to you if you're still here if you're still listening hi thank you i hope that you will join us again in the future next episode we are talking about the movie mad god by phil tippett so i'm excited to talk about some wet blood that's the little insight that i'm gonna give for that but definitely 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 i just i beg you to watch this your name film it's just so beautiful and yeah if you haven't been convinced by this podcast that the episode then like then fair enough but just check it out i thought i would end on some some five-star reviews of the film from letterboxd so this is from picantic osalami this film took my heart dropped it on the ground stepped on it stabbed it ripped it apart and threw it in the trash and the next five-star review from Starny Moon. Sobbed so hard I threw up. If that doesn't sell you on this film, I don't know what will. Thank you again. This has been The Real Thing. And I'll catch you next time. Goodbye. This has been a Bergen Film Club production. Our music is by Wise John. Check them out on Instagram at WISE John Official. Our logo is by Pia Sophia Brentesen. This episode was produced, mixed, and engineered by Joel Lawrence. Our researchers are Inke Schilbgeibern and Mamina Nazmajit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at bergenfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TheRealThingPod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK The Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye. Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.